Um, I need to tell you something as we prepare to receive our offering. Uh, I need to tell you something that's happened that you need to be praying about. As you know, it was our privilege several years back to be used by the Lord to build a children's home in Bangalore, India. And there are 15 or so, that kind of sometimes shifts a little bit, 15 girls who are off of the streets, out of situations, uh, most of whom would not be alive today had it not been for the Bangalore Children's Home that you all built. Nobody else helped with that. That was just you. And several of us have been there a number of times, and we've seen it, and several of us sponsor those girls in that children's home as well. And the children's home and Cornerstone Ministries that we're connected with has come under intense persecution from the militant Hindu government there. Uh, It's part of what they do to Christians in general in India. And one of the things that's happened lately is that the government has come in and insisted that the Christian children's homes in the area send their children, the orphans, back to their villages for a month. He said, yes, you can have them, but they have to go back for a month. And so during the school break, they have to go back. Their parents are not there. Their parents are gone. But they have to go back to their village. And the strategy here is obvious, that they want to put them back into an unbelieving environment, hoping to break the Christian influence that has been so heavily you know, placed on their hearts and so much Christian love has been poured into them. They have a life that they never could have had. The, so the girls have been sent back, all except one of the girls that Karen and I are privileged to sponsor, Elizabeth. And the reason she didn't go back is because there's no place for her to go back to. That she was actually found in the wilderness, left there as a baby to die, to be devoured by wild animals. She has a scar under her right eye. She was just a toddler at the time. And when they brought her, Pastor Stephen and Queenie, it took them, they said, up to six months to get her to stop eating dirt and stones because this is how she learned to deal with her intense hunger, even though she was getting food. This is, this is the situation we're ministering to in India. And I just want you to know that. I want you to know why we do what we do. This week, we, we received an urgent email from Queenie asking us to pray. And she said, Dear sister and pastor, I'm writing in urgency. As you know that the girls went home to be with their respective families... Last night I received a call from Esther, this is one of the girls, saying that her parents had fixed her wedding to a man 20 years her senior, and it was going to be on the 29th. Immediately in the morning, Pranab, who is one of the the staff people for Cornerstone, and our lawyer left to Tripati to try to rescue Esther. Our people contacted police as she is a minor, and she is right now in police custody. Around 100 of her relatives are gathered, and another 50 locals are causing trouble outside the police station. Esther boldly has recorded her statement, saying that she is a minor 
and wants to return to Bangalore to continue with her education. Her parents want her to return home, promising no such stunts will be pulled, but we are trying to bring her back in the correct way with legal documents. They threatened to disown, but she stood up, said, My mommy in Bangalore will take care for me. Please pray this should be resolved, and she must come back. Thank you, Queenie Stephen. And the update on that is that, as I understand this, uh, that she was released back into the custody of Queenie, that she is back in Bangalore, but that her village has disowned her. Has disowned her. You know, I just want you to remember why we're doing what we're doing. I'm so proud of you in so many different ways. I'm proud of those of you who are engaged in activism against human trafficking. I'm proud of you for that. And I'm also proud of you who take the time to sponsor these children in India or Africa or wherever. Because you are, you are getting ahead of the human trafficking moment by giving them a place to be. I know it's a somber thing to say, but we need to pray. We need to pray. The enemy is loose in the world today. Speak to our hearts, Lord. Speak to our hearts, Lord. You have made this such a generous fellowship. Your fingerprints are all around the world because of these people. Lord, we do not want to be moved by guilt today because that's so short-lived, but we would be moved by compassion. So we invite you to come and speak to our hearts, Lord. We pray for Esther in India. Spirit of God, just come and bless her with the fullness of your love for her as her father. Pray for the other girls. We pray for Queenie as she just works tirelessly to stand against the forces that stand against her. So we just ask you, O Lord, to rebuke Satan and to continue to pour out your love and mercy to the people of India through our sister Queenie and all those many, many, many others who are there throughout that huge population. But just now we just say, speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, my computer taught me something very important about change this week. And what it taught me was that I don't mind change when it's planned for and expected, but I really don't like change when it's thrust upon me. And so there had been, I guess, this little thing down in the corner that said, do you want Windows 10? And I would click no. And does anybody know about this? And then uh, on Tuesday of this week, I was working at my desk, 
And, it's, and I walked back in my office, and it said 8%. I thought, 8% of what? And it said, 8% of the conversion to Windows 10 is completed. And I said, I didn't even ask. I don't even really know what Windows 10 is. 8 was fine. I must have skipped right past 9. And it said 8%, and it said, you only have like four hours to wait, and we'll be done. So I'm wandering around starting to bother other people in the office and I asked Amanda at the front desk something and I said something I wanted her to look up something in the database for me and she said, well you're going to have to wait because I'm only 7% done. With what? Well I guess I'm converting over to Windows 10. And so uh, I was just uh, struck with how You know, I don't mind change if I'm a part of it, but I hate change when it's sudden, when it's thrust upon me. At the end of the day, though, I got thinking about my first computer. Dave Siebelnauer at Micro Center, he had a distinctive enough name as a salesman that I'll always remember it told me that this, this computer with two meg of memory, not RAM, memory, he told me that would be the only computer I would ever need. <laughs> and I believed him. Lo, these many Windows 95, 98, 2,000 blacks, P, 7, 8, no 9, now 10. I don't know how many there have been. Lo, these many sudden changes later, and I do have to admit, it's better. (laughs) It's better than it was. That somehow, even when sudden change is thrust upon us and shatters Shatters the inside that somehow it's, it's going to be better. We're on our 16th stop in our Through the Bible survey here. We've been looking at each book as we've gone and putting the ones and twos together and stuff like that and combining Ezra and Nehemiah into one. And now we're all the way up to the Psalms. Isn't that how you say it? We're up to the 16th stop on this survey series of the Bible where we're just kind of working through the Bible and say, what are these books about? We can't dive into every verse of every page, but what are we doing? Well, it's kind of a high, high fly over it. Starting each week with the context. What's going on in this, in this bigger book in the Psalms that would help us to understand individual Psalms that we read? Well, to understand the context of the book of Psalms, which is 150 of them, you have to think really widely. It's 150 different Psalms written by eight different authors, or, and one's even an author group. And so it, it's, it's really a wide, very diverse set of verses of Scripture. And if you look at the top of any of the Psalms, they'll tell you who wrote it, and it'll say there, it's this guy or that guy is the author of that Psalm. 
And uh, the good news is, is we have confidence in those renderings because in 1947, a shepherd was wandering around in Palestine and he threw a rock down a well because he was looking for a lost sheep. And he heard a clink, clink, clink and went down there and they found what's become known to us now as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And these are some very, very ancient scrolls of Scripture. And when they found the Psalms among them, which is rendering first century, they found these names written at the top of them. And so that gives us substantially more confidence that these actually were the authors of these particular Psalms. There are eight authors. Starts with David, King David, Goliath killer David, that guy, David and Bathsheba. He's responsible for 73 out of the 150 Psalms. Because they are what? They're songs, right? And he was a singer. David just loved to sing and dance before the Lord. His son Solomon was responsible for two of them. Solomon, son of David, also a king. He wrote a Proverbs. He wrote Ecclesiastes. He wrote Song of Solomon. I don't know how... I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to have to skip over Song of Solomon. I don't know how I'm going to treat that on a Sunday morning. That is such... I mean, there's some pretty risque stuff in there. We're going to have to put like a PG-13 rating on that message. Have you have, Some of you are going to go home and read it now, right? <laughs> but that's Solomon. Asaph wrote 12 of them. Um, along with Asaph's sons, he was actually ordained by David to be the worship leader of the coming temple. Now that, David is the, like the premier worship leader. So Asaph was ordained by him to do that, imagine... Imagine that. And recommissioned, the people of Asaph, of his line, were recommissioned by Nehemiah when the temple was rebuilt. Remember when we got to that? So they're big worship people. The sons of Korah, which I think is a great name for a band. If I'm going to start a band just so we can call ourselves the sons of Korah. Is that good? Or is it just me? There probably already is. Somebody Google that. Is there already a band? There is? Check it out. Let me know. In Numbers, in the book of Numbers, a man named Korah rebelled against Moses. They didn't think he was doing a good job, and so they rebelled against him, and Korah and his 'er ne'er-do-wells that he had enlisted in the rebellion were swallowed up by the earth. The sons of Korah said, we're going to devote ourselves to God. And they became very active worship leaders responsible for 11 of the Psalms. Moses, anybody heard of Moses? No? No? He's a big deal. You should have got there by now. Moses, there are more words attributed to Moses in the Bible, more words, than any other single author. Moses is responsible for one of the Psalms, Psalm 90. Ethan, Ethan is listed in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 31, as the second wisest man in the world. Interesting, isn't it? Solomon is the wisest, and then he said he's even wiser, even wiser than Ethan. So he's kind of the silver medalist in the wisdom race, right? He got this. He got second place, which Jerry Seinfeld said the silver medalist is the guy who works the hardest to lose. He's the first loser. He worked harder than any of the other losers. The bronze medal guy, can, what can he say? He can say, yeah, I lost, but at least I didn't work as hard as this guy who got the silver, right? So that's who this guy is in the wisdom race. Heman, which if I were named that, I would call myself He-Man. He got half of a credit in one of the Psalms. Um, his brother Ethan he got a shout-out from the sons of Korah in Psalm 88. I think he just brought the coffee. And then the other 50 Psalms are anonymous. So they're just a big group of, we don't exactly know who wrote them. 
um, but probably not one person. They're very distinct in their flavor. So when you start thinking about Psalms and the context of how to even understand what, what it means, you need to give some thought to whose psalm is this. Because it makes a big difference if I say this or John says that, right? Because we're two different guys, right? And so they would be coming from two different places. It was written over a period of about a thousand years, all these psalms. I mean, if you start with Moses, who was about 1500 B.C., who wrote Psalm 90, and you go back to, I think it's Psalm 79 and 80, which are called the deportation psalms. That's when they're being carried off in 586 into Babylonian captivity. Remember that? Say yes. Just humor me at least, okay? And, and, and this is when they're being deported. These are the deportation psalms. So they cover, they cover a writing space of 1,000 years. That's a lot. Okay? So you have to think about when, what was going on when this was written. Uh, the Psalms in context encompasses the widest possible range of expression. You'll read some of those Psalms that are all about ecstatic worship. That's how we like to think of the Psalms, right? The joy of the Lord. You know, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll say rejoice. This is the day. Did you hear the kids on the video? Could you hear the song they were singing? This is the day that the Lord has made, right? That's in there. So you have that expression. And then on the other hand, you have why have you rejected us, O God? Why have you burst forth upon us? Will you ignore us forever? So you have the full range of human expression, and it's determined by the circumstances of the writer. So I guess what I'm trying to say is a widely varied context. You have heartfelt expressions primarily to God, or, but also about God. So if you look at, like Psalm 63, that starts out, it's a, it's a song to God. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there's no water. So that's, that's a song to God. But the very familiar, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me. To, that's, a, that's a psalm about God. So both of these expressions of worship are equally valid. And you'll see in our songs that we mix it up. Some of our songs are to God. And some of our songs are about God. Just trying to follow the pattern of the scripture there. Okay. Normally I like to talk about main storylines here, but what are you going to do with psalms, right? Because they're each individual packages, quite separate and self-contained, so I'm going to jump to the hot spot for today. So turn in your Bibles to Psalm 84. Psalm 84. Karen taught me when I was just a little puppy in Jesus that if you just let your Bible fall open in the middle, you're really close to Psalms, okay? Psalm 84, verse 10, is our hot spot. This is one of the Psalms of the sons of Korah. And they say, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. <laughs> I love that. Uh, better, it would be better. It would be better, they're saying, to spend one day in the house of God, in the presence of God, than a thousand days elsewhere. That it would be better It would be better to have an encounter with God than to be the wealthiest person in the world. 
I'd rather, it would be better to be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. I'd rather be the guy that nobody pays any attention to than to dwell in the tents of the wicked with wealth and yada, yada, yada. He said it would be better. It's better. That God has something better. It's better. There's one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. It's just better. Why is it just better? Well, it's just better because of verse 2. Check it out. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Do you hear the heart cry? This guy says, I just got to have God. I got stuff. I got people in my life. I got stuff. I got experience. I can go here. I can go there. I can do things. But at the end of the day, I got to have God. My heart and my flesh. It's like a physical thing, he's saying. He says, my soul yearns. Yeah, that's an inside thing. But it's like my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. You are driven here today by a deep desire to know God. You are driven into this assembly today by a deep desire to know God. If you were looking for religion alone, you wouldn't have come here. This place doesn't even look religious, does it? Karen and I were meeting, chatting with some of the newer people in the church last Sunday night, and they were kind of telling their stories about, you know, their initial encounters here and stuff. And one guy, he was just hilarious to me. He said, when I came, from his background perspective, he said, I came and I looked up on the platform. And he said, I thought the place had just been robbed. <laughs> he said, the next thing I expected... The next thing I expected was for you to pass the plate and say, yeah, we've got to get some money to replace all the stuff that has been stolen from up front. If you were looking for religion, you wouldn't come here. Because there are a lot of places that do that a lot better than us. But you're not looking for religion. Your soul yearns for God. Your heart and your flesh cry out. That's why it's better one day in his house than a thousand elsewhere. The purpose of our being created is to know God. That's why it doesn't make sense until we do. It doesn't even start to make sense. The purpose of our creation is to know God. Genesis 1 And so the central purpose of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross is to put us back in that spot, to restore us to our place so we can know God. We were created for that. You were created to breathe the air, yes? And you can only hold your breath for so long and your heart and your flesh will cry out, right? You were created to drink water, yes? And you can only go without drink for so long and your heart and your flesh, will mat- they'll overtake you, won't they? You're created for food, yes or no? Yeah. <laughs> you can only go so long and deny your created purpose. 
It'll kick in. It'll take over. The Bible says we're created to know God, to know Him. Not to know just about Him, but to know Him, to encounter Him. And so when we deny that, eventually it overtakes us, doesn't it? That's how you got here. And it's just better when you do. It's like that first breath when you come up out of the water. It's just better, isn't it? Isn't that amazing? It's just better when you encounter God. It's just better. Because you're satisfying God's creative purpose. It's better also because of verse 4 in Psalm 84. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They're ever praising you. Blessed are those who are where? In your house. There's just a blessing when you come into the house of God. And you know, we understand from the New Testament that the house of God is wherever two or more are gathered in his name, right? It's not this building. It's this place. And you're just blessed when you come into the company of other believers. Because what? They're ever praising you. You're just blessed when you enter into the worship. When we overcome whatever it might be that is oppressing us or hindering us from expressing our praise, our worship, our thanks to God. When we get past that and we declare it, there's a blessing. So it's better. When you're in His house then you're blessed. Jesus said in John 14, don't let your hearts be troubled. Some of you have troubled hearts today. It's okay. Me too. But he said, don't let your hearts be troubled. He said, you trust in God? Trust also in me, Jesus said. Because he said, in my Father's house are many mansions. Come on in. Come on in. Come on in. The blessing is in entering in to his house. You're created by God to be a vessel of his blessing. I'll agree with the TV preachers on that point. (laughs) Not many more, but on that point, you are created to be a vessel of blessing. But I think the purpose is pretty distinct in the scriptures also. The purpose is so that you can be a blessing. Not so that you can accumulate blessing, but so that you can be a blessing. But you have to receive the blessing before you can be a blessing, yes? How many of you have sometimes worn yourself out trying to be a blessing to others and you forgot to go and get filled up again? Don't point. Verse 11 of of our psalm. For the Lord is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Stand up if your walk is blameless. I know. What are we going to do with that, right? (laughs) I'm glad nobody stood up. Not quite sure what I would have (laughs) done. Our walk is blameless by the merits of Jesus Christ. We are heirs of the promise because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. My walk is not perfect. 
but it's blameless because Jesus took the blame for me. <laughs> How do I get this blessing? Well, look at verse 12. O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Just trust him. It's better. It's better when we're in his house. It's better when we're getting the blessing. It's better because of verse 5. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. I love this next line. Who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. Set their hearts on pilgrimage. Pilgrimage was the phrase that the Hebrews used to talk about going to Jerusalem. Because remember, they were dispersed. And so it was wherever they were in the world that was always on the heart of a Jewish person to say, someday, some year, during Passover, I'm going to make the pilgrimage back to Jerusalem. And I'm going to celebrate the Passover at the temple. So that was the pilgrimage. And the Bible is saying here, blessed are those who set their hearts on pilgrimage, because it was a big deal. You didn't just buy a ticket and get on the plane. It was a big deal to make that pilgrimage. And the Bible says, blessed are those whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. Why is that better? Because when you make pilgrimage, you're always moving toward the better. when When you set your hearts on pilgrimage of moving, of walking in the Lord, and not just staying in one place in the Lord, then you're always going to better. Because the next step in the Lord's plan for us is always better. And you might be saying, yeah, but I like the good. I want to stay here on the good. You can't. As soon as you stand still on the good, you begin to die. You're always in motion with the Lord. Abraham said, my my father was a wandering Aramean. This set the stage that we're always in motion, believers. It's always moving. Set your hearts on pilgrimage. You're on a pilgrimage from here to heaven. Yeah? I mean, how many of you planning on going to heaven after this? Because of what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. Now you're in pilgrimage. Why are we still here? He's getting us ready for heaven. Faith as a Christian is not an arrival at a static place, a lifelong pilgrimage. So that means that better is always... At least one step ahead. You can't get better. You can't go to better without moving. Verse 7. I like the way it says it here too. Really fascinating passage. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. What an image. From strength to strength. That's part of the pilgrimage. So you're already strong but there's a stronger place. So you're already on a mountaintop. You're getting velocity in your walk with the Lord. You're getting your faith alive, and you're in a good place. And then he shows you another mountaintop, right? And he says your journey goes from strength, which is stronger than you were on the old mountaintop, to strength. Let me ask you this. What's in between two mountaintops? Every single time there's a valley. You can't get to another mountaintop without going through the valley. There isn't another mountaintop unless there's a valley. (laughs) 
and you go from strength to strength. How? Through the valley. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear, for you're with me. Who knows what I'm talking about? The pilgrimage is always to a place that Psalms calls better. This Psalm 84 says it's just better. God's saying, I got something better, but you've got to set your heart on pilgrimage. Have you set your heart on pilgrimage? I mean, are you looking for a spot where you can sit and where you go, okay, this is good. Don't anybody change anything. This is good. Or have you set your heart on pilgrimage? Going, God, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will what? I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. (laughs) Better is one day in your house than a thousand elsewhere. It's just better. It's just better. So I called tech support. (laughs) And I said, I don't like this. Nothing's working. I can't get online. I can't check my email. You gave me Windows 10, and now my laptop doesn't work. Well, yes, sir, we can help you from here. I said, look out your window and tell me what you see. I've probably been there. So we started this conversation about fixing my laptop. And here's what he said to me. He said, sir, your laptop is in bad shape. He said, you have 5,824 programs on it that aren't working. I said, I'll only use three programs. How do I have? They've come. Did they come with Windows 10 or what? I mean, I didn't ask for any of this. All I want to do is check email and make some slides for Sunday. That's about all I really want to ever do. And they said, sir, you must have your computer re-imaged. Re-imaged. It will be like new. And here's what he said. Will you, will you allow me to have control of your computer? I said, sure. <laughs> oh, sir, this is worse than I thought. You must take it and have it re-imaged. Sometimes we get there in life, don't we? We just need a re-imaging. We got programs going on in there we didn't ask for. And we just need to be re-imaged. The Bible says if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. The Holy Spirit is in the re-imaging business. He wants to give you a new image. The Bible says as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. He's in the re-imaging business. But what did I have to do in order to get to this re-imaging point 
I have to say yes, you can take control. I trust you. I don't like this. I don't like the sudden change that has come on my computer. But I trust you. Because better is one day in your house than a thousand elsewhere. Church, let's stand together. Father, we worship you. We honor you. We invite you to come and receive our worship. We invite you to come and heal our sick. We invite you to come and save our lost, to restore those who have fallen, to counsel those who are troubled. But above all things, Lord, we invite you to come and set your face in front of us so that we can fix our eyes on you, so that we can see you. We can begin to see the better. We can begin to see that it is from strength to strength that you always carry us that there be a valley in between, but you're taking us to a better place. And we trust you. We trust you, oh God. And some of us in this house right now are just ready for a re-imaging. We're just ready for a full workover of the Holy Spirit. And I invite you to come now by the blood of Jesus to cleanse off these 5,000 other things that have found lodging. I invite you to come to reorient every person to their identity as sons and daughters of the living God through the blood of Christ. We invite you into this place. If you're a person here today and you'd just like to be a part of a prayer some kind of re-imaging or however you want to say it. You just want to come up close and be a part of what the Holy Spirit will do up here. Come on. Just come on up. You just need refreshing. Just come on up. Just come on up and let the Holy Spirit touch you. You can stand. You can kneel. You can